0: Scott talks about and talks with sympathy about anarchism, but he's not actually talking or trying to convince people of anarchism. He's con- trying to convince them that the New Deal and the Civil Rights Movement, right, are things that compel us to be a little bit more insufferable to the state, but not that there's some underlying conflict that we have with the state, which leads us to envision a social order totally different from it. You know, when he's talking about sorry, when he's talking about the um civil rights movement, you know, Harris quotes him as saying, imminent in their willingness to break the law was not so much a desire to sow chaos as a compulsion to instate a more just legal order. To the extent that our current lo- rule of law is more capacious and emancipatory than its predecessors were, we owe much of that gain to lawbreakers. And, you know, this is not really, again, this is not an argument about anarchism, right? This is what I'm talking about when I say, you know, he's trying, he's rhetorically he's trying to create, and, and Harris points it out he's trying to create an unobjectu- uh, unobjectable anarchism, right? But to do that, he is laundering it through American symbology, American progressivism he's trying to craft this vision of anarchism that somehow includes MLK and Franklin Roosevelt, that includes their rhetoric and their ambitions, that includes their agendas and the groups that they had to contend with and the strategies that they constructed in the meantime, that's not really anarchism. You're just dealing with, I mean, those. you're dealing with ways to, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s case, you know, a black democratic socialist, a black communist who is trying to figure out how to peacefully... You know, upended an immoral, um, you know, apartheid system. Um, not that there would be a moral apartheid system, but an immoral system of governance that's you know, fundamentally an apartheid system. And then Franklin Roosevelt, who's trying to save capitalism from itself, right, by reinstituting some sort of safety valves after the past 20, 30 years have hollowed out the liberal class right, have hollowed out the left mechanisms that helped contain the excesses of capitalists over the past few, uh, over the previous uh, few decades. It's not really, you can maybe mend them together in a liberal framework, but can you mend them together in an anarchist one when the anarchist in of themselves is opposed to the state, believes that the abolition of the state is a is a necessary plank for human liberation? No, right? Um, and, and, And this is one of the core constraints of his book, trying to say that we can reject authority and we can do it sensibly. Uh, We can do it um, respectfully, right? (laughs) Essentially with good leaders, (laughs) with management uh, techniques, essentially, right? It all conjures up a political imagination that doesn't look that much different from the one that we have now, right? That one that just rephrases and rearranges the life that we have now into something that feels a little bit more, a little bit more just, a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more, a little bit more aligned with a better world, but not actually fundamentally changing the underlying structures that create this world. Right. He tries to in an, in another section of the of the review. Right. Uh, we have Malcolm Harris kind of laying out the anarchism of Scott and talking in this chapter where he he says, two cheers for the uh, petty bourgeois, is the title, right? And he's trying to talk about this class by pushing back against arguments by Marxists that malign the class, saying, Scott writes, the petit bourgeois, small property, in general, represent a precious zone of autonomy and freedom in state systems, increasingly dominated by large public and private bureaucracies, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to insist that he... He believes in free enterprise but only for people who are dispossessed by the market. Makes this but makes a weird mistake, a common anarchist mistake, as Harris points out, that state oppression is fundamentally different from other forms of domination. And so that he thinks that the petty bourgeois are are are, are benign because, you know, quote, the exploitation they practice is largely confined to the patriarchal family. But that says that Fundamentally, that's saying, okay, well, it matters more how free a small property owner is than his wife and children, as Harris points out, right? That is like an objective. That's a that's a conclusion that we would object to. And that continues and builds along in, in, in how he thinks about and tries to defend the petty bourgeois, right? Because he's focusing on the class, defending a very specific type of landholder, not considering how race or gender or sex or is our sexuality we may like in any way should perform contour domination that people feel in the workplace and the family, you know, and he, he says that what they all have in common is that they are largely control they are largely in control of their working day and work with little or no supervision, right? Is not entirely accurate. You know, that Scott is again, you know, by you, by trying to construct a rhetorical appeal and trying to connect groups together to make an unobjectable anarchism, he's pulling on this image of like small family businesses or small families or small groups to insist that, like, actually they they are necessary and they're good and they should come on and join the anarchist project. But he's falling back because he's laundering it through these American symbols. He's falling back on this rugged individualism, right? He's falling back on the pre, uh, pre-configuration of certain jobs being for certain people and certain parts of society being for certain people. You know, as Harris writes, he compares uh, the life of a petty bourgeois favorably to that of a clerk at Home Depot, you know, the, the day, quote, the day laborers waiting outside the store suddenly fall out of the former category. The enclosure of common lands introduced an assimilating desperation that goes unaccounted for. In his attempt to outmaneuver orthodox Marxism, Scott jams together the petit, petite bourgeois and a lumpen proletariat into something bizarre, into some bizarre entrepreneurial superclass meant to rival this proletariat for hegemony. But beware of the professor who admires his gardener's autonomy. Right. <laughs> very, I mean, just like a very simple sort of, you know, this is, this, this sounds like a professor being a working class whisperer. And I think ours continues to go on with more examples of it. But like, there are a lot of, I think, you know, the core thing is Scott's criticisms or Scott's attempts to savage anarchism end up resembling Hedges attempts to minimize or dismiss anarchism. Right. What we, that we don't like either we like what we want to happen in a specific form and so we need to make make it presentable and that means we have to excise this part of that part or we want people to like what we like and that means we have to obscure parts that may find objectionable or transform it by laundering it through symbology that's fundamentally opposed to it right you can't live like an anarchist you can't launder anarchist principles through through the imperial core through like the, you know the through the the mythology of the largest empire in um in the world today, right? Or one of the and the most powerful one to exist in human history? You can't do that. The options then become: Do you want Scott, who says to be an anarchist is to be a cool liberal Democrat or to be a cool Sock? or do you want Hedger to say is to be an anarchist is to be a threat to the social movements and you should be turned into the cops? It ends up being a strange sort of thing that gives him a chance to launch to then be like here's my self-help manual at the end